0: Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. I'm so glad you guys are tuning in with us today as we are wrapping up our sermon series. Through the life of Joseph this week and next week. I'm so excited to be entering into the fall with you guys. Um, There's just a few announcements. Um, We have a uh, family day upcoming in September. Be on the lookout for that. Um, In September 25th, we're doing an intro to Gospel for Life. We've got a youth gathering next weekend. Um, We also have a leadership team meeting for everybody that's on our leadership team. And we're just so excited and privileged. To be moving into the fall strong as we're kind of moving out of our post COVID relaunch uh, into a strong position in the fall. Um, just a few things. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can text us, 931 326 4512. You can email me, Josh at redeeminghope.org, or Derek at derek at redeeminghope.org, or you can join our church wide Discord, slash Discord. Also, if you'd like to partner with us financially, you can do so at ourhope.cc slash give. You can find us on Venmo at Redeeming Hope. Now, with all of that said, I'm excited for us to move forward as we look at this really interesting story that kind of is right tangled in the middle of the story of Joseph. You see, um, Joseph's story has been kind of central to the theme, the last theme of Genesis, right? So we're kind of finishing up the first book of the Bible, and it's kind of the, the culmination or the end of the beginning of everything, right? Because Genesis sets up most of the themes that we see throughout the entirety of the Bible. But very interestingly, um, uh, right after Joseph is sold into slavery, there's an entire chapter devoted to one of his brothers named Judah, his older brother, Judah. It's a very odd story. It's a very strange story that kind of makes you wonder, why in the world is this story of Judah right smack dab in the middle of a story about Joseph? And what we see in this offshoot, or kind of parentheses, is this unlikely character that when we pull back, we see the whole story of Joseph, that Judah is a central player, a key figure in the life of Joseph. And it might actually be what the entire end of the book of Genesis is about. That maybe that the side story isn't Judah, but maybe the side story is Joseph. And we're actually going to look at a theme from Genesis to Revelation about this older brother of Joseph, whose name is Judah. And he goes throughout the entirety of the Bible. So as we begin, uh, I want to explain this. I think it's very important for us to see Joseph's descent. He's a very cruel man. He's a very evil man that gets changed and drawn in by Jesus, actually, and Jesus' work in the story of Joseph. So uh, let me explain here as we begin that the Bible is not a series of disconnected stories about good moral people that we should emulate. I think that's how most people try to read the Bible, that it's the series of good stories about good moral people, we should be like them. But rather, we see that it's one story of generations, millions, uh, thousands of years, millions of people, broken people, that are paving the way for the only perfect, righteous person, Jesus, who is our Savior. That all of this is pointing to Jesus. So we're going to look at even the life of Judah, who we think, and I'm going to argue, that is actually what the end of Genesis is all about. We see that even in the life of Judah, he is pointing us To Jesus. So we're going to look at four things Judah's shame, Judah's pledge, Judah's hope, and the pledge of safety specifically for you and me. So, first, let's look at, let's actually track the whole story of this older brother Judah because it's very interesting. I see, uh, let's go, actually, we see the first time we see Judah is when he's born and his mother Leah was having multiple children to try to earn her husband's love. Look with me at Genesis 29. It says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel, the other wife of Jacob, was barren. So we fast forward and says, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. And then she stopped bearing for a time. So we see that, that the, the woman whom Jacob loved was a woman named Rachel. But he was tricked and deceived into marrying another woman, Rachel's sister, named Leah. And so we see that Leah knows that she is unloved. And we see this through the names of her children. This is how Judah's born. He's born to a really broken, messed up relationship that he observes between his mother and his father. You see, Reuben says that his oldest brother, Reuben, was, and she says, I named him Reuben because the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely now my husband will love me. That's what that's what Leah says. That's why she named her son what she named him. That's crazy. Then we see another one of Judah's brothers, Simeon, because the Lord's heard that I'm unloved, he's given me this second son also. Well, like Leah's the theme of Leah's life is that she is unloved. Levi, third son. Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I bore him three sons. She's just having children to try to earn her husband's love. And the fourth child is Judah, right? Smack dab in the middle. And she stops having children for a little bit after Judah. And then she says, this time I'll praise the Lord. It's like Judah was like the first person born that she doesn't name as a result of her husband's lack of love for her. So you can imagine the dysfunction that Judah grew up in, seeing this lack of love and care for his own mother by his father. And then we see that Rachel, the loved wife of Jacob, had a couple of children of her own. And one of those children was Joseph. Then we see in Genesis 37, Judah comes back on the scene collectively with his other brothers. And it says, when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And what we see that Judah is a part of this is that he hated his father. He hated Jacob because Jacob did not love their mom, Leah. And as a result of hating his father, they also hated Joseph because he was more loved than them, because he was the son of the more loved woman, Rachel. So we fast forward, and the brothers devise a plan to kill Joseph because they're so hateful towards him. And then Judah's kind of the ringleader, right? He kind of steps up as a leader amongst his brothers. And we see in Genesis 37, 26, these words, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. So we see what kind of person Judah is, right? Not only do we see collectively he hates his father and he hates his brother, but very specifically as the ringleader of his brothers, he said, hey guys, let's get some money out of our brother. That word profit literally means the gain made by violence. He's like, come on, let's get some, let's get something out of this. Let's get some, something out of torturing our younger brother. So he's vying to sell his brother into slavery instead of kill him. This was not an act of grace towards his brother. Had he stepped up and said, hey guys, we shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. They probably would have listened to him. But instead he goes right along with it and rather sells his brother for money and for profit. And then we see Judah, As the ringleader of this whole plan to try to deceive their father, it says, then they took Joseph's robe and he had a coat of many colors that his father had given him as a sign of wealth and a sign of favor. So they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify, please recognize whether this is your son's robe or not. And that word recognized is going to be something that's it's bolded on the screen. And we're going to see that this is a, a word that is going to come up over and over again. It's a very key word in the life of Judah. But we see the cruelty that they have that Judah specifically has towards his father. Judah was the ringleader of his brothers. He's masterminding the sale of his own brother into slavery. Now he's masterminding the deception of his father. So they dip this, 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 uh, this, this robe that is owned by Joseph into blood, and he sends it to his father and says, Hey, do you recognize this? Do you recognize this? This is Joseph's. So we see Joseph is sold into Egypt right at the end of chapter 37. And the next chapter is devoted to this strange story about Judah's brokenness and his increase of cruelty over decades of time. And this idea of Judah is vital to our theme of hidden grace. So I'm going to read the text here of Genesis 38. I'm going to kind of put it together for time's sake we can't read the whole chapter. And I'm going to explain what's going on for us to really get a picture of who Judah is and what type of person he is. So we're kind of jump in the middle of the story and I'll explain. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son is born. This grows up, excuse me. For he feared that his oldest son, his, his now oldest son would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And in the course of time, the wife of Judah died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told your father-in-law is coming up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil wrapping herself up and sat to the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So he turned to her at the roadside and, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. About three months later, Judah was told, Hamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out. Let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify, please recognize whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified or recognized them and said, she, meaning Tamar, is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. Now, What in the world is going on here? Let me explain. So Judah is evil and he has evil sons. Tamar married his firstborn. Now remember, she's probably being married off when she's 12 or 13 years old. So the entirety of this story happens when Tamar is a teenager, the entirety of the story. So what happens is that we see the firstborn died. Tamar marries Judah's firstborn son, and because he was evil, the Bible says because he's evil, he died. Now, for a woman to be a widow was almost like a death sentence in ancient Near Eastern culture. She's completely socially and economically vulnerable. She she can't get a job. She's a teenager. Now everybody knows she's not a virgin. So she's considered ruined and worthless in that culture. Now, because of this, there is a rule in ancient Near Eastern, this ancient Near Eastern context, and that's called the Leverite Rule. Okay, The Leverite Rule says that the father-in-law was supposed to be the defender and the provider of his daughter-in-law in the event that his son died. So essentially, if he, the, there was a marriage that happened and the son his son died, he had to be responsible for his daughter-in-law. And the best way to do that was to marry her to one of his other sons so that she could be provided for and have safety and she could bear sons of her own. He was supposed to bring her into the family and provide for according to the Levite law. So that's what he initially does begrudgingly. His, he, has, he marries her to his second son. But we see again that his second son is evil and is killed by God. So God kills the second son who is evil. Now, remember, Tamar's now a widow twice. She needs to marry the third son, but Judah sent her away until his son was able to be married. He sent her back to her father's house. He essentially abandons his responsibility to her, and then he neglects his promise to her. He kind of said, hey, my people will call your people. Okay, so you just go away, you wait, and I'll marry off to my third son when he's ready and I'm ready. We'll for sure call you. Of course he doesn't. And what this does is this exposes Judah's descent into evil and cruelty. It exposes Judah's lack of faithfulness to care for his, this young teenager who is now twice widowed because his sons were evil. The Bible says his sons were the evil ones. But somehow Judah also exposes Judah's denial of his bad fatherhood. Now you could probably trace this back it doesn't take an expert in psychology or counseling to figure out that his father hates his mother okay his mother has named almost all of her children saying i'm trying to earn my husband's love i'm trying to earn my husband's love i'm trying to earn my husband's love and then when judah comes along she says ah well i guess i can praise god now i got four of them right so you can imagine the dysfunction in that family and then he abandons his younger brother his half-brother to be sold into slavery. He convinces his father that his younger brother died by a wild animal. So you could see just how messed up Judah is as a result of his father's favoritism. But he has a lack of faithfulness. He, he denies his own bad parenting to produce two really evil sons. And it says that Judah feared that his, sons would, his third son would die like his brothers. He's blame shifting to Tamar. He's saying, well, it's just because they married that crazy lady. So let me just send her away. He is selfish, he is passive, and he is cruel to deny her the protection that she deserves. There's an element of trust that she made, that their families made, that that her own father, Tamar's father, said, I'm going to marry her into this wealthy family. Judah was a wealthy man. The sons of Abraham are wealthy people. And he said, well, I'll marry her into this wealthy family. I know that she'll be taken care of. And then lo and behold, a couple years later, she's coming home, childless, twice widowed. So then we see a number of years go by. And she has no hope. She has no future. And she stayed a widow for years. Now, she's far away from her home. She lives in poverty. And every day she's reminded of her husband's deaths because she has to put on the cloak of a widow. She needed to be identified in that culture as a widow legally. And so she would put on the cloak of a widow. Every day she was had the, the death of her husbands in front of her face. She's childless, she's celibate, she's forgotten by Judah who's supposed to protect her. She has no hope and no future, to the point where she's gonna be doing something so drastic that she has risked getting publicly executed because that's how terrible her life was. So Judah comes to town. So we find out that Judah's wife dies, and Tamar hears about it. And she hears he's coming into town to do some business. And so she goes into action. A very risky plan. She dresses like a prostitute, and she stands at the gate where the prostitutes would stand. And and Judah sees her and hires her and has sex with her, and she gets pregnant. Now, in order for Judah, her strategy, what's so interesting, is that her strategy, Tamar's strategy, only works... If Judah is a terrible person, like his wife just died and he sees a prostitute and is like, I need to get some stress out. Let me join with a prostitute. She's a cult prostitute. That's what she was posing as a temple prostitute to a false God. Okay, so not only is this a sexual deviation from Judah, but it's a spiritual deviation from Judah of whom the lineage and the line of God's blessing was supposed to walk through. And her strategy is completely dependent on him being a jerk. It's completely dependent on his moral bankruptcy. And she was right, because she knows her father-in-law. And she uses even the sexual double standard of her time to her advantage. And it's been so many years he doesn't recognize her as his daughter-in-law. And what, what does he do? He is so morally bankrupt that he literally gave her his signet ring. The signet ring was like the family checkbook. That's how you would press your signet ring onto wax. And that would be like your signature that you were going to pay whatever bill that you were going to pay. So when you gave someone the signet ring, you're giving them the family checkbook. And he's a wealthy man. But he's so morally bankrupt that he's just looking to get a prostitute after his wife dies. And she's banking on it. And she was right. So he even gives up his entire family checkbook in order to spend a few minutes of pleasure with this prostitute. And then we see that the, really the climax of the story is where Judah's cruelty is exposed. So she conceives, and he thinks that she's been messing around. Now remember, he's abandoned her. She's been living celibate for years. He's completely abandoned her, forgotten about her, is not going to marry her off to his third child. And this astronomical cruelty enters. He wanted to have her burned to death, torture, cruel. Even in that culture, it would have been a gross overreaction to her having sex outside of marriage and being sexually immoral. It was, the, it was only reserved for the worst of crimes. And he is, he's going to take this teenager who's been hurt, who's been forgotten, who's twice widowed because of his evil sons, probably because they were evil because of his evil parenting, and he is going to torture her and kill her and her unborn child. Now, this is the risk that Tamar took. And what's interesting about the Hebrew here is he does not even refer to her by name. He says two words when he hears what she did. He says only two words in the Hebrew, take, burn. That's all he says. Take and burn. Now, Tamar has no identity. She has no value. He doesn't even use her name anymore. That's a a literary design in the text as it's written to show us that he has completely abandoned her. She's worse than a dog to him. Take and burn. And you know what? Judah in this moment is probably relieved, right? Right. He's vindicated. See, maybe his sons didn't die because they were cruel. Maybe God was punishing him for marrying his sons to this wicked woman, Tamar. He was probably relieved that he didn't have to marry his third son off to her. He's probably relieved to get her out of his hair. That's why he was so quick to kill her, so quick to murder her. And this is what we see, this climactic event as she's been literally getting carried out, right? She's being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify, please recognize who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them. Harkana, remember? Recognize these? Remember that sly, coy way that Judah convinced his father that his younger brother had been killed by a wild animal? Recognize this? Dad, this coat of many colors that you gave our younger brother, who you loved him and loved his mother more than you loved our mother and loved us, I even mean, though we're serving you and we're older and we deserve it, recognize this. It's that same word, Harkana, that Tamar now uses to call Judah's intense moral bankruptcy out into public she's literally dragged to get burned to death which is a public affair so the whole town is there they've heard about tamar's immorality and they're about ready to execute judgment on her and they're they're preparing a literal stake and they've got wood on it and they've got fuel on it and they're going to throw her on and tie her to it and burn her to death and her unborn child and then she screams out recognize this And all of a sudden, everybody finds out that, oh, my gosh, Judah is the father. He had sex with his daughter-in-law. And he gave up his entire family checkbook to do it for just a few minutes of pleasure. And I think in that moment when she says, up, recognize this? I don't think she was just talking about the signet ring. I think she was also talking to Judah about himself. Judah, do you recognize yourself? Do you see who you are? Do you see what you've become that you would have burned a teenager to death? That you would have even have killed your own sons in my womb because of how cruel you truly are. See, Judah isn't the righteous person here. He's in denial about his sons. He's neglected his obligations to protect his family. He's sexually immoral and he's cool. Now, a Hebrew rabbi commentating on Genesis 38, hundreds of years ago, he said, uh, this is what he said, the Holy One said to Judah, you deceived your father with Harkenah. By your life, Tamar will say to you, Harkenah." But what's interesting is that we see in the very next verses, Judah turned around. He recognized himself and he changed. He actually says she is more righteous than I. Now remember, Tamar is not to be celebrated in this story either. She also sinned. She was a victim, but she also sinned. She committed an act of immorality. She did so for various reasons, but she is not purely righteous in this either. But what Judah's saying is that she's she's more righteous than me. And he spares her life, and she has two sons born to Judah. He changed. He recognized himself. And we see, and we will see here in a few minutes, that Judah's whole life changed as a result of this deep shame. Because remember, all of this happened in public. They're about ready to murder her. She screams out, recognize these, and then they bring out the signet ring that everybody knew was Judah's. So in his moment of deepest regret, in his moment, in his most public shame, Judah's heart began to soften and change. It was actually God's hidden grace in Judah's life, to bring him to this moment of brokenness. So we see Judah's shame. But then we see Judah's pledge. Now we fast forward, we go back into the story of Joseph. Joseph is elevated to the right hand of the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh. And we see that Joseph had another full-blooded brother, whose name was Benjamin. And that was from Rachel, who was the woman that Jacob loved. Now, Joseph When he sees his brothers come to Egypt, he was trying to get Benjamin to Egypt. And he's trying everything he can to convince and manipulate his brothers to bring Benjamin back to Egypt. We're going to see why here in a second. But what happens is they get some food and the food runs out. And they need to go back to Egypt to get more food. But Joseph had forbidden them from coming back unless they brought Benjamin. And they have this conversation, this very interesting conversation with their father Jacob, to convince him that they need to go back and buy more food from Egypt, and in order to do that, they need to take Benjamin, the son whom he loved and that he favored, because he was the son of the favored wife, just like Joseph. So Reuben had said earlier, before we read this text here in a second, Reuben had said earlier, "You can bring the boy with me, and if he doesn't come back, you can kill my two sons." Like that's how morally bankrupt this whole family is. He's like, oh, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring the boy back. And we're like, well, that's not going to work. But then Judas steps up with his father and he says to Israel's father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. How interesting is it? Now, Judas is taking responsibility for the whole family in this moment. And he says, I will be a pledge of his safety." From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let, then let me bear the blame for Evan. You see, what's so interesting is that Judah makes an honorable pledge to be a representative protector for the favorited Benjamin. He, he says, I will bear the blame. I will put myself as the guarantee of his safety. And how interesting is it? That it is in such a severe opposite contrast to how Judah treated his brother 20 years prior. How Judah treated Joseph 20 years prior was Joseph was abandoned by Judah, but Benjamin was secured and protected by Judah now. Judah didn't offer himself as a pledge for Joseph. But instead he used Joseph for his own gain, but rather now he offers himself as a pledge for his brother Benjamin in order to save their whole family. He's thinking about how do I save the family, not just save my own skin, not just get some money from my back pocket to sell my brother. What he says, is, I'll offer myself as a pledge because this whole family needs saving and nobody's willing to step up and do the hard thing. What's also interesting is that Jacob hasn't changed either. Jacob is still playing favorites. It would have been a lot easier if he hadn't played favorites, right? And all the sons were the same. But he hasn't changed. He still has a favorite son. And it's Benjamin, who is the son of his favorite wife, Rachel. But Judah has changed. And and to prevent this entire family from starvation, he makes a pledge to be the representative protector of Benjamin. So now the whole family gets on a caravan, the brothers, with Benjamin. And they go to Egypt a second time to get grain, right? Because the family's starving. They still don't know that Joseph is the person they've been talking to. But when they get there and Joseph sees that Benjamin, his full blooded brother, the favored brother, has arrived, he begins to do some very odd things. He does three very weird things. We're going to see why in a second. He's very focused on Benjamin. Joseph decides to give Benjamin five times the portion of food and drink from his own table. So, literally, Joseph plans this whole scenario, manipulates an environment in which Benjamin is honored more than his other brothers. He then secretly returns all of their money into the grain sacks for their trip home. So they have these sacks of grain. What he does is he puts the money back. He doesn't take any money from them. But then he secretly instructs one of his servants to place a valuable silver chalice into Benjamin's sack, because what he was going to do is going to find it and accuse him of thievery. Why is Joseph doing all this? This makes no sense. Joseph is designing a plan to try to see whether or not his brothers have changed and whether or not Judah has changed. He's setting up a test. Have they changed? Are they still the same? So what he's trying to do is butter up his brothers to make them feel more resentful towards Benjamin. Showing Benjamin favor, talking about Benjamin, giving him five times the portion of food, showing him favor in the courtroom. Will they be jealous? This is what he's thinking. Will they be jealous of Benjamin like they were jealous of me? And will they abandon Benjamin in Egypt like they abandoned me to Egypt? So he devises this plan to show favoritism for Benjamin, and then to accuse Benjamin of thievery, and then say, "Hey, you guys can go." This is what he says, Genesis 44. But Joseph said, "Only in the only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant." But as for you, go up in peace to your father. He's talking to Judah. You see, Joseph is making it very easy for Judah to abandon Benjamin and destroy their father again. He finds the cup that he placed in Genjun's grain and said, oh, you guys are free to go, but I'm, your brother's a thief. I'm going to keep him. And remember, he had been showing him favoritism this whole time because Joseph hasn't seen his brothers for decades, and he's trying to see, are they still the same? Do they hate Benjamin like they hated me? Are they going to abandon him in Egypt like they abandoned me to Egypt? And then Judas shocks everybody. Then Judah went up to him, to Joseph, and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. You asked us, saying, Have you had a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Listen to the words that Judah is saying. He is acknowledging his father's favoritism, even to the point where it seems like Judah has no other children. It's almost like Benjamin is his only child. He keeps saying he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. He's, it's, almost like, it's almost like Benjamin is his only child. That's how much Jacob considers Benjamin above his other brothers. And Judah does not do this in bitterness, but love, and he's compassionate towards his unhealthy, dysfunctional father. He essentially says, if we go back home without Benjamin, it's going to kill our father. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as, as his, speaking of his father, as, as Jacob's life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Then he tells him why he's saying this. Judas said, for your servant has become, for me, for your servant, me, I have become a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not remain, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil. I would find my father. How how interesting is it that Judah speaks so much compassion towards his father, who cruelly has favorited Rachel's children over Leah's. This is such a contrast when he failed his obligation to protect his brother Joseph, isn't it? Now, instead of saying, hey, let's get some profit out of this. No, I'm going to put myself in his place. This is such a contrast to when he failed his obligation to protect his daughter-in-law Tamar. My friends, this is true repentance. This is true hearkening recognition, identification of who he truly is. He saw himself where he truly was. He's changed. And this change in Judah changes everything for Joseph. Then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known. To his brothers. He hearkened himself to his brothers. It's that there's a root word there called Yada, which is the same root as all these other times where we've seen harkanah. He says, Recognize me. We see the same word that was used to torture Jacob into thinking that his son. The same word that was used by Judah to torture Jacob to say your beloved son is dead. Recognize this coat covered in blood, must be dead is the same word that Tamar used to say, recognize this. And Judah recognized it. He repented. And that's now the same word that Joseph uses to reveal himself to his brothers. Recognize me. And then to tell them that it's all going to be okay. This is all a part of God's sovereign plan. Judah is not the same man. And Joseph tests, Joseph's test exposed the change in his character and Judah's legacy forever altered. So now we see Judah's hope. So uh, now the whole family, fast forward a couple of years now, the whole family now moves to Egypt. They're going to be protected under the safety of Pharaoh and under the safety of Joseph. And now Jacob, this dysfunctional father, who showed so much favoritism to Rachel's children, he's dying in Egypt, okay? And he's calling all of his children one at a time to his bedside to bless them. And he brings his fourth son Judah to his side. And these are the words that he says. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dared arouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Did you catch that? All of a sudden, the scepter, the ruling scepter for the entire nation of Israel that will come from the seed of Abraham, now from the seed of Jacob, the whole kingly line will be Judah's line. And from Judah will be the lineage of the coming savior. And he says, Judah will be like a lion's cub; that he's going to prowl around like a lion, dominant and domineering. His hand shall be the neck of his enemies. Remember, Judah is not the firstborn. He's not the son of the woman Jacob loved, but he is a transformed man who received a promise, not because he was good, but in spite of his deep deep brokenness and i just couldn't help but thinking as i was reading this last night about jesus saying for the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost and i was just thinking about judah was a lost man cruel and bitter astronomical cruelty was going to burn his own daughter-in-law to death and yet he was transformed when he hearkened out when he saw himself he recognized himself he recognized what he had become he changed and we see he's got a hope now of a legacy in the future where all the line and the lineage of kings come from Judah himself. Now, you and me, what, this, what does this mean for you and me today? Where's the pledge of safety for us? My friends, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the hope is in the seed, the hope is in the lineage of Judah, the hope is in the legacy. And you see, we find at the end of 38 that I didn't read the last few verses by intention. See, after. Tamar says, recognize this, He pulls out the signet ring, and it says Judah recognized it, and he repented. He literally did. He saved her, and he said, you're more righteous than I am. Well, six months after that, Tamar delivers birth to two children. Look with me. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But he drew back his hand, and he called his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. My friends, the word Perez, the name Perez means breakthrough. He broke through. The sun broke through. I think that's a symbol for Judah. He was spiraling downward into a life of cruelty, unloved and uncared for and unloving and uncaring for others. But Judah had a breakthrough, a turnaround when he hearkened out. When he recognized. See, what we said earlier is true. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories about good moral people that we should emulate. Far from it. The Bible is one story of generations of broken people paving the way for the only perfect righteous person, Jesus, who has come to save us. And that's where we get to Jesus from the lineage of Judah. Look with me at Matthew 3. In the lineage of Jesus, To show his pedigree, that's what it says. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, father of Hezron. Then you move on down in the lineage. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. My friends, the cruelty of Judah led to the incestuous relationship of Tamar which led to the birth of a breakthrough child named Perez who changed Judah into being a man who carried on the royal lineage, which gave birth to Jesus. And this broken, cruel relationship with Tamar is in the genealogy of Jesus himself. And what we see is, like Judah, Jesus is our pledge of safety. But unlike Judah, he looked from eternity past. He knew all along. And he volunteered to leave eternity. Jesus stepped into human history to be our pledge of safety. And unlike Judah, where it was immediately resolved, Judah just pledged himself and then everything resolved. But Jesus did not just offer himself, but he gave himself. Jesus was broken. He was beaten. And he was ultimately murdered as our representative substitute, our pledge of safety. So my friends, how do we respond to this today? up, recognize, examine. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, recognize Christ as your representative substitute. Recognize Christ as your pledge, who pledged his own life in place of yours so that you and I could come back home again. And you can do this. All you need to do is repent and believe. You hear it, believe that it's true, and obey by making Jesus Lord over your life. That's what it means to become a Christian. Become a Christian today. Accept Jesus as your representative substitute. If you are a Christian, then you need to recognize Jesus as your ongoing substitute and pledge. And continue to be changed and transformed by him into looking more like a pledge of safety for others in your context. You see, we can be a pledge of safety for others. Because Jesus is a pledge of safety for us. Now I told you, we would go from Genesis to Revelation. As we conclude our time today. Look with me at the words of Revelation 5, starting in verse 3. This is at the end of time, the culmination of human history. This is what will happen in the future. And no one on heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. The scroll was to describe the ending of time. The scroll that would unfold the judgments of God on the earth. And that would bring all of humankind underneath his lordship, his rule and reign, establish his kingdom forever. No one was found worthy to open the scroll. And one of the elders, one of the people surrounding the throne of Jesus, said to John, who's writing this, He said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. My friends, we have the lion of the tribe of Judah from the lineage of Judah who has stepped up to be our representative substitute. The question is, will you hearken on this, will you recognize this, and will your life be changed because of it? Thank you very much for watching, and have a good day. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.